narrative that Luke gives us of that. And Luke here in this passage, it's really a pretty well-known passage. You'll recognize it, I imagine. Luke emphasizes a certain thing that distinguishes those who belong to Christ. And it really may seem obvious to you as you, as you think about it and as you listen to this, uh, no pun intended, but it does bring with it an important exhortation for everyone who is in earshot, which is this. There's a difference between listening and hearing. There's a difference between hearing and understanding. There's a difference between knowing about the gospel and believing and doing the gospel. And here's the distinction that Luke emphasizes. Jesus insists that blood relations are not what make his family a family, but rather being united in gospel faith and action. This is Luke 8, beginning in verse 1. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed, by, healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has, will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. 
Father, help us to understand, help us to hear, and help us to do what your word calls us to do. We recognize, Lord, that uh, just the mere words of a man speaking through your scripture will not do that, but your word will do that, and by the work of your spirit we know, Father, that you can, and we ask that you will, that you would grant to us new life, if that's where we are, or would you grant to us more life, more abundant life, more conviction of the, the things of Christ, and help us, Father, to turn and to trust you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. My family hears me. Is that a statement that you are prone to make? Some of you would. Some of you, I'm sure, would make that statement every day because you have the most caring and considerate and loving mom and dad, and you have the most conscientious and loving brothers and sisters, and you have the most diligent and attentive sons and daughters in your home, and there's never any friction. Everyone always does good for everyone else. There's never any problem. Never mind. There's, no, there's nobody here like that. There's no one here like that at all, right? No one would describe your own home that way, right? My family hears me. Is that something that you're likely to say? Some of us would say that some of the time. Most of us would say that at least occasionally, but none of us would say it all of the time because hearing, you know, is not just a physiological phenomenon. Two men were talking to each other about their wives. One was feeling a little bit complaining, and he said, my wife talks to herself all the time. And his friend said, mine does too, but she doesn't know it. She thinks I'm listening to her. (laughs) There was an official with the National Transportation and Safety Board who was interviewing flight attendants about their job, trying to figure out how can we approve the process and, and your work and what's good about your work and what's bad about it. And one flight attendant complained to this, this official, she was so frustrated by the passengers on airplanes and their constant inattentiveness to the pre-flight safety lecture that the flight attendant gives. You've heard it before yourself, whether you've flo- flown once or a hundred thousand times. Some of you have heard it so many times that it just rolls off of your ears now. And that's what she was frustrated about. And so she explained to this official, she said, she said I, I eventually began to just take a an experiment and changed my words in the pre-flight safety check. And she said, I I began to say, in the case of an emergency, the oxygen mask will drop from the ceiling. Take that mask and place it over your navel and continue to breathe normally. She said, no one ever noticed. No one ever said a word or even lifted an eyebrow. The physics of sound had worked perfectly to carry those words to the ears of every passenger on the plane, but the words were not heard. That's the problem that that Luke is dealing with in this narrative account here, but it's an even more complex problem than just that. It's a spiritual problem, of course, and you see it in the repetition that Luke offers to us of Jesus' words. 
Verse 8, as he said these things, Jesus called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And verse 18, take care then how you hear. And verse 21, my mother and my brothers are those who hear. In other words, there's an important distinction between those who belong to Christ and those who don't. A distinction between listening and hearing. A distinction between hearing and understanding. A distinction between knowing about and actually believing and doing. Now, we'll skip around a little bit in this, this long passage here, but the first thing that I'd like for you to notice is Jesus' warnings for listeners. Verse 4, And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable. And then follows, of course, one of the most widely known parables in all the gospel accounts, right? The parable of the sower. Or more appropriately, really, the parable of the soils, because that's what it's about. And it's a series of warnings for those who might listen to Jesus' teaching. Warnings to suggest to us that listening is not enough. You must hear. That passively hearing, letting the the physics of sound come into your ears, is not enough. You must understand that just knowing the facts of what's being said is not enough. You must do what the Word of God says. So if you're listening, that's great. But be warned, there are four different outcomes here, and only one of them is a good one. Next week, we'll actually come back to those four outcomes because they're details of the parable, and they're important to dwell on, even if it's very familiar to you, to return to it and evaluate yourself in terms of how the Spirit is at work in your life. But we're not going to take time to do that today. We'll come back to that that next Sunday. For now, I want to take a look at, at really, I think, the two big picture warnings that, that come to us through the words of Jesus here. And they come to us, ironically, through a parable. It's, it's ironic to us because we actually like parables. I would imagine that you probably do. Modern Christians in our day and age tend to like parables, and even non-Christians like parables. They're interesting stories. They kind of captivate our attention. And we can follow along with them. And they tend to kind of make things more clear to us. But we need to realize the reason for that is because we have all of Scripture to help us with that clarity. We have the whole counsel of God and instruction and teaching and experience to to understand what they're trying to clarify. But the job of a parable is not just to reveal things. It's actually also to conceal things. Things. And so the first big picture warning is this. No matter how hard you listen, you will not hear the Word of God unless He reveals it to your ears. No matter how hard you listen, you will not hear the Word of God unless He reveals it to your ears. The people would have responded to this parable very favorably, I'm sure, because it spoke their language, as John mentioned earlier. They would have said to him, Rabbi, we know some things about planting and harvesting. I mean, after all, here we are in Galilee. Jesus was from there, too. He grew up with this stuff. It was farmland. It's, it's lush, green farmland, farmland even now. Things are growing there. And that's what these people did. It's what they knew. They would have received it favorably, but Jesus ends it with a subtle warning, doesn't he? 
He who has ears, let him hear. The implication is, some of you are not hearing what I'm saying because you can't. And if they did hear it, they might have understood the prophetic reference here. Ezekiel 12 would be one such reference. There you read, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, son of man, you are living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see, but do not see, and ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious people. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples are a little bit confused, aren't they? So they asked Jesus what this parable means, and he explains to them the bigger picture of parables. But he doesn't quote from Ezekiel. He quotes instead from Isaiah. Verse 10, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others those secrets are in parables so that, to quote Isaiah, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Isaiah, back in that Isaiah 6 passage, was a very eager and willing young prophet, ready to go, ready to listen to the word of God and to do what he said. After all, he saw the vision of the holiness of God before him, and that's what it takes to reveal to you the words of God. Isaiah received those. He was ready to go, but his words were going to fall on deaf ears, ultimately, because there's a hearing problem for many. Not a hearing problem with the ears so much, but a hearing problem with the hearts. There were those who opposed Jesus at this time, and so he spoke in code words, as it were. That's what these parables were, code words. And the point being, no matter how hard you listen, you can't hear the Word of God unless He reveals it to you. The second big picture warning is this one. No matter how hard you try, you will not resist the Word of God when He does reveal it to you. No matter how hard you try, you will not resist the Word of God when He does reveal it to you. Jesus explains the parable to these rookie parable interpreters in verse 11. He says, now the parable is this, the seed is the Word of God. Stop right there. We'll go into the rest of it next week. But the seed is the word of God, he explains. And that is, after all, the central element of the parable. Now, the soils are the the application avenues of it, but the seed is the central figure. It's the central image. It's the central picture that Jesus is offering here. What is a seed? A seed is small, isn't it? I mean, think about the the variety of different seeds that are out there. If you're a a gardener, maybe, I hope that you are, at least to some degree, and exposed to it, you know that seeds are very small, and so they can be easy to lose. They can be easy to ignore. They can be easy to assume that they are weak. That is, after all, what the world thinks about the Word of God. It thinks that it's weak. But a seed, small as it may be, is not weak. Tim Keller tells a story of an Italian man who died about a hundred years ago. And this man was hostile to Christianity. He hated Christianity. He didn't want anything to do with it, but he was a little bit afraid of it too. And he was very nervous about the idea of the resurrection from the dead. After all, the scripture teaches 
the resurrection from the dead, not only of believers, but of unbelievers too. And the man did not want the resurrection from the dead. And so he arranged with his family or those who were around him and who would be organizing his own funeral, he arranged that when he was to be buried, they would place a large, heavy stone slab over the top of his grave because if resurrection comes about, I want to be stuck. I don't want to get out of the ground. I just want to stay there, he said. Well, as things would have it, apparently an acorn had been buried just under the edge of that stone slab, and it sprouted. It began to sneak out from underneath underneath the edge and turn into a, a, a crooked tree, but a tree nonetheless, an oak tree. And over the course of decades, that acorn grew, that tree grew thick and strong, and it split that stone slab in half. Because whenever you put a stone slab up against an acorn, which one is going to win? Over the course of time, an acorn is always going to win. Always. Because the power of the seed is patience over time. And you can't resist it. It is the power of God. It is His Word. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher in London, was a 15-year-old boy who had the urge on that particular day to to go to church. He had not yet been born again, wasn't a Christian yet, but had an urgency for some change of life. And it was a snowy day. He was on his way to one church, but the snow diverted him into another church, a, a tiny primitive Methodist chapel. I'm not quite sure what a primitive Methodist church is, and I grew up Methodist. But it was sort of a primitive Methodist church, a little chapel. Now, on that particular day, a snowy day, people couldn't make it. A few people were there. And the preacher wasn't there. A layman had stepped in to the pulpit at the last minute to preach. A cobbler, a shoemaker, apparently, Spurgeon says. And the cobbler stood behind the pulpit and he picked a text from Isaiah 45, verse 22, and he read it. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. That was a sermon text. And Spurgeon says in his autobiography, he said, The man had not much to say, thank God, because it compelled him to keep on repeating his text. And so the man kept repeating the text over and over again, maybe in some different ways. He would say, look, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look, I'm hanging on the cross. Look, I'm dead and buried. Look, I'm rising again. Look, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Look, look, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. That was the extent of the man's sermon. And Spurgeon says that his heart soared. Why? Because the sermon was so great? No. Because the seed is alive. The seed is the Word of God. R.C. Sproul died just a month ago. And a very significant teacher in the American church and the worldwide church, really, and And I will never forget hearing a a recording of him years ago talking about his own conversion, his own coming to Christ. And he said, it happened when I heard, or I read, I guess he was reading scripture. He was reading in Ecclesiastes, and he read this verse in Ecclesiastes 11. It says this, where a tree falls in the forest, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. He said, that was the verse that caused me to come to faith in Christ. 
Because I guess he pictured himself as the tree falling in the forest. He, he took the imagery and he said, if I, if I die, I fall down here and I lay here and that's where I lie. That's it. And he said, the word of God dug its roots into my heart and I was born again. Isn't that crazy? Because the seed is alive. It grows slowly and surely with pressure over the course of time. I mean, think about that in your own life and all the the influences of the Word of God in, in your life over the course of time. This is why when we send our kids off to worship training, they go back there, as John said, not just for babysitting or childcare. They go back there to learn to worship. They go back there and they hear an order of worship, a liturgy of sorts that's suitable to their age, and a lesson from Scripture because the seed is being planted. And the same is the case for you over the course of time. How many Sunday school lessons or sold school lessons have you heard over the course of time? Vacation Bible school, your own personal Bible study, sermon after sermon after sermon. How many sermons have you heard in the course of your days? And some of them are captivating and some of them are not. But, but always the seed of the Word of God is present. Even as you come to the communion table, it is the Word of God in sacramental form, bread and wine. It is the body and blood of Christ. It is the word of God over and over again, little by little, an acorn is sinking roots into your soul. So be warned, if the word of God is taking root in your soul, you cannot resist it. And if you're a hearer, then there will be proof. There will be proof. Jesus shifts gears in verse 16 away from the parable, doesn't he, on to what's really more of a proverb. And even changes the imagery because after all, the, the seed and the soil were not his only concern on this occasion. Remember, he's uncovering a distinguishing mark of those who belong to him. So verse 16, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to the light. Take care, then, how you hear. Those who who hear, who belong to Christ, will be known for it. Like a lamp on a stand, they will be seen. It's there to shed light. In other words, there will be proof Because your faith is not a private matter. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it up. They put it on a stand to be seen. Jesus is in the the business of putting light to lives, and light, by definition, can always be seen. Do you know, besides the sun, what is the nearest star to our planet? Some of you astronomers may know that. It's Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri, I understand, is 4.3 light years away. That's hard for us to grasp what that exactly means, the distance of that. Now, Alpha Centauri is visible in our night sky, but it's 4.3 light years away. And to put that in, in, in context for you, on a scale size, if you reduce the size of our sun and Alpha Centauri, if you reduce their enormous size down to the size of a grapefruit that I could hold in my hand. I'm holding the sun here and Alpha Centauri here. 
Now, do you know how far apart they would be on the scale of 4.3 light years? Not this far apart. Put this one in New York City and put this one in Los Angeles, grapefruits. That's how far apart they are. And yet the light from the one can be seen at the other. That's amazing, isn't it? That's astonishing, isn't it? Just as God ignited that star to be seen in the heavens, so also he ignited his hearers to be seen in the world. And it's proof of their hearing. I mean, there's, there's no cookie-cutter pattern to this, though. Every believer reflects this light differently. But sometimes Christians impose expectations on each other or on themselves as to what that light will look like. So there are different ways that we see this. You know, one, one is in some of the songs that we sing. There's, there's one song that's a, become a very, very popular, very favorite, really, American Christian campfire song over the last 30 years, Shine, Jesus, Shine. And it's a really nice song. It's actually a really good song. It's a campfire song. It's kind of campy, right? You know, so you've sung it before, I imagine. And, and <clears throat> many of you, I'm sure, love that song and for good reason. It's a good it's a really good campfire song. We don't, read, we don't sing it here in church because we don't tend to do campfires <clears throat> at church. It's just a different style. But, but many Christians love that song. It's a really good song like Kumbaya, my Lord. Right? I mean, you sung that song at, at camp. Come by here, my Lord. Come by here. There's nothing wrong with singing that. You should sing that and you should pray that. It's a beautiful song. Shine, Jesus, shine in the same way. But there's something that, that many of you need to know. You know, some of you who love that song need to realize that there are introverts among you who are a little uncomfortable with that song because they can't quite get their emotions up to the heights of the shining and blazing and flowing that's required by the song. And so they can't quite relate to, the, to, to what the song calls them to. Because some lamps just don't quite shine in that way. So introverts don't fear, right? The, the, the shining of lamps that Jesus calls you to doesn't require that you be the world's greatest evangelist. But it does require that your faith not be private. If, if not a public rally, then at least your faith is shown in public repentance at times. In May of 1948, there were three men who robbed a bank in the <clears throat> tiny country town of Hoyt, Kansas, and they made away with $1,000. A week later, the police arrested two men who had some of that money, and they put them in jail. They didn't find the third one, but they closed the case. Years later, years later, a young man in his 20s named Al Johnson went to the district attorney, and he confessed. He said, I'm the third man. I was a teenager when we committed that crime. The statute of limitations by now, years later, had passed, but Al Johnson told the district attorney, he said, I'm willing to go to jail. Put me in jail for my crime. They wouldn't put him in jail, but he did pay back the money that he had kept from the crime. And he explained, he said, I've thought about that crime many times over these past years. And I became a Christian, and I prayed about that crime. I asked the Lord to give me an answer, and it seemed that he would only give me one answer. And that was to give myself up. Because the word of God 
bears fruit with patience over the course of time. If you have ears to hear, then there will be proof. Take care then how you hear, Jesus says. Literally, he says, watch therefore how you hear or keep your eyes on your ears, right? Pay attention to your ears and see how you hear. Pay attention to your own life. Are you bearing fruit with patience? Because, verse 18, to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. In other words, to one who has the fertile soil of a repentant heart, even more understanding and more light will be given over the course of time. But to the one who obstinately refuses to demonstrate the proof of hearing, even the former flicker of hope that might have been there will be extinguished. Those who belong to Jesus hear Jesus. And Luke's narrative offers then a picture of some of those who hear him. Who are some of them? Verse 1, Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women. He's traveling. He's just left Simon the Pharisee's table over dinner where the woman came to him, repentant heart, demonstrating all of these gospel truths. And he's now gone afterward to travel through the cities and the villages proclaiming the kingdom of God. And who's with him? The twelve, the disciples, and also some women. Luke is careful to point out to us. Jesus is gathering a congregation of people to him because there are some who are hearing the gospel from his lips. And who are they? Well, they are, for one, people of low regard. The twelve, the disciples, I don't need to belabor this point, but the twelve disciples were just Galilean peasants. A few fishermen, some tradesmen, shopkeepers, perhaps. A few of them were political activists. You know, they probably were the guys that would sit at the coffee shop after they farmed their their crops and talk about uh, how they were going to dream of overthrowing the government. They knew, knew that they never could because peasants don't do that kind of thing by themselves at least. These were were inconsequential people of low regard, but Luke throws in this little twist here that's a very important twist. And some women were with him as well. It was unheard of in Judaism of Jesus' day to consider a woman to be a disciple. Rabbis were not real keen on teaching Torah, Scripture, to women in that day. It just wasn't generally done because there was just, of course, this patriarchal kind of paradigm in place in the culture at the time. In fact, women were not even permitted to serve as witnesses in court because their testimony was just considered to be invalid. And that was the way of the time. And so Luke emphasizes the presence of women in the gospel accounts for I think a few reasons. I can think of at least a couple of them. One of them is for the sake of historical proof. The gospel records in each case that that women were the first ones to the empty tomb to report that the resurrection had occurred. And that's an interesting detail of the gospel accounts because if you were making up the fact, 
not a fact, if you were making up the story that the resurrection had occurred, you would not allow for women to be the first witnesses of it. You wouldn't, unless it really happened. That's the only reason why you would do it. And it really happened, and so they did it. So historical proof, Luke wants to emphasize that fact. But he also, I think, includes the women and emphasizes their presence for the sake of practical sanity. Men and women are, are, are not the same in the eyes of God. They are distinct. They are different. Men and women in God's creation are different creatures. He created men and women. And our culture, of course, would work very hard to lean against that. But at the same time, women and men are, while not the same in the eyes of God, they are equal in the eyes of God. They're equal in His eyes as the bearers of His image. And so the coming of the kingdom of God always turns aside and turns over the cultural taboos and the fears that drive them. Always it does that. It unravels the corporate blind spots, which was just a reality of that day. There was this corporate blind spot in the patriarchal society that women were not valid testimony because they're women. And Luke wants to show that Jesus is here to undo that because the, the kingdom of God overthrows those sorts of corporate blind spots. These women were providing for Jesus and the twelve out of their means. Literally, Luke says, they were serving them from their possessions. These women were providing from their own possessions for these men to carry on this ministry because some who hear are of low regard in the eyes of the world. Others, of course, among this congregation are people of high regard. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, we're told, Herod's household manager. This is an interesting little detail, isn't it? That this woman is a part of the, of the band of disciples traveling around with Jesus. Her husband is the manager of Herod's estate, evidently. And he's, uh, you know, maybe he has a job that, that I've heard of, of, of some people having in our day and age where someone, there's a family that's so wealthy that someone, they hire someone to come and manage their, their estate. They, it's a full-time employee and they come and they, they manage the, the properties and the businesses and the possessions of this family that happens today. Apparently that was happening even at this time. And, and this woman, Kuz, uh, uh, Joanna, the the wife of Cusa was related in that way to Herod's court. She is from people of very high regard. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, Luke tells us there that the church at Antioch had not only Saul, who would become Paul, but also another man named Menain. Menain was his name. He had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. In other words, he was like a stepbrother to Herod the Tetrarch. He was like Moses in Pharaoh's court, so to speak, and here he is in the church in Antioch. There are those with connections in this world with high regard who are in uh, and among this congregation. The kingdom of God does not exclude those. But then there are also people who you'd rather not regard. There are people who you'd rather not regard among those who hear. Mary called Magdalene. 
Mary of, Mag, of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, is well known in the gospel accounts, isn't she? And sometimes there are some misperceptions of her. Sometimes we assume that she must have been that woman in Luke 7 who came, the prostitute, to weep at Jesus' feet in repentance. Maybe that was her. That was, that was not her. There's not really clear evidence in Scripture to suggest that that was her at all. In fact, we don't really even know that Mary Magdalene wasn't a, you know, a quote, immoral person. We don't, we don't really know that. What we do know is what Luke tells us here, that she had seven demons cast out. That's troublesome. I mean, if someone has seven demons in them in our day or in their day, they would be someone you'd really rather not regard at all, right? That's someone that we just want to shove aside and pretend that they don't exist there. Well, here she is as one of Jesus' congregation because there are afflicted and troubled people among those who hear. You know, the point of all that is simply to say, you can always find something to criticize about those who hear Jesus. Always. You always can. Among any congregation, there are those of low regard and those of high regard, and there are those of no regard at all. And that's the way that it is. That's the kingdom of God coming. But all of these he considered to be his family. So what is it that unites them? Verse 19 and following. Luke tells us his mother and his brother, brothers came to see him, right? He had at least, we know, four brothers and some sisters as well. His mother and his siblings came to see him, and, and he takes the opportunity to make a point. He says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, he's not stiff-arming his mom and his siblings. Understand, he's, he's not doing that. That's not his point. He wants to make points. And his point is, blood relations are not what make the family of God to be the family of God. Rather, being united in gospel faith and action is what proves that you hear. So beware of the warnings. Examine yourself for the proof. And keep yourself among those who hear. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh Lord, we pray that you would work among us even as we come to your communion table this morning and help us to believe, help us to trust you, help us to hear, Father, even if words aren't spoken, help us to hear the moving of your spirit in our souls and to see the rooting down deep of your gospel in our lives so that we might trust you and follow according to all that we hear from you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.